From the studios of Ting It Up in the swamps of Jersey, this is Ting It Up with Jeremy Schilling for Monday. Uh, what is today? Monday would be the 26th of November, the year 2018. The Monday after the match, which just turned into an absolute disaster for Turner and their digital side, but we'll get to that. Uh, we welcome Ryan Ballinger from the Golf News Net to talk about it. Hello, sir. Um, so obviously I have to start with the question that everybody um, is asking and the question that all of us, um, even non-golf fans, are yearning to know. Will Ho Sung Choi get a special exemption into the Masters? Because I believe Augusta National needs his swing. I don't think that they will. <laughs> I think the wet wind gets him somewhere that's like the top 250 in the world. Yeah. I feel like that's kind of hard to justify. If he got in like the 150s, and maybe he still can. I mean, there are still a couple of events left in the, the Japanese uh, tour season, so there's still some time for that. But if he does that, then yeah, I think he could probably see an invite from Augusta National the way Shivankar Sharma did for his run uh, or, you know, early on in last European tour season. But I, I don't see it coming for a guy that's 250 in the world. He's going to have to do something spectacular between now and April to, to earn that invite. What surprised you more, the fact that this guy won an event and won it in really impressive fashion, or the fact that, that, that Japanese tour television has side-by-side -side 3D TrackMan? I'm not really surprised that the Japan tour has interesting technology. I mean, you think about Japanese culture, yeah. their obsession with technology. I mean, they've brought so much to television over the years. You kind of figure that maybe they're a little cutting edge. So I, I'm not too surprised about that. I am kind of surprised that Choi won, though. It had been five years since he had won on his other win on the Japanese tour. That was in like a three- or four-man playoff. So this was a little bit different for him. He's obviously the two Japanese tour wins are close. This was a one-stroke affair for him over... Uh, Brendan Jones, but uh, I am kind of surprised that he did. It seems like his wins are fleeting, few and far between. I think he has four total professional wins, and they're in like 08, 11, 13, and 18. So it just kind of happens here and there, but he seems to have caught a little bit of fire here, and, and hopefully he can ride it for a little while. For those who don't know what we're talking about, Ho Sung Choi uh, is, is the golfer whose swing went viral over the summer because of how crazy it is, and he finishes off balance, and all this stuff, and uh, he won a Japanese tour event um, in, in really impressive fashion, too, by striping it down the 18th fairway, which is a par five, and then hitting it on in two and two putting for the win. All right, um, let's steer clear of the, of, of the technological issues with the match for a second. Let's actually talk golf. Um, what surprised me most, Ryan, is that Tiger and Phil had hyped up that, you know, this is going to have to make birdie, 63 or 64 is going to win this thing if there was no wind. Shane Bacon said there was no wind. There didn't really look like there was much wind. And yet, they both shot 69 and we ended up in a playoff. Um, it really, I, the quality of play, I mean, Barkley called it crappy. It's basically what it was in the front nine. I did not expect that kind of poor play. I don't know who stimped the greens, but they were too slow. I mean, I know they're slopey, but you got to make those greens a little faster. But that just, I mean, the quality of play in the first 9 to 2 to 11 holes really surprised me. It was a slow start, that's for sure. Uh, a lot of missed opportunities. 
I feel like both guys missed putts that were probably makeable on a course they see every year, on a course they see frequently, but both of them have owned the course record at Shadow Creek over the years. So I figured that they would score a little bit better, maybe closer to 67 or 66 would be the winning score if you were keeping track all the way through, and obviously the gimmies and stuff like that with, with concessions. But I was kind of surprised at the slow start, and I think that you got a sense of how slow it could be when Phil missed a pretty much straight-in putt on the left side and never had a chance on the first hole for $200,000. Yeah. So I, I think it seemed like those guys maybe were a little bit nervous. They didn't feel natural. It didn't feel normal to them. You could tell the conversation at the outset was kind of forced and that they, maybe they were doing it just because they felt like they had to. And, and then they kind of got into the rhythm of the match. I think a lot of people have observed this, but by the time they got to the 10th, 11th, 12th hole, it felt like golf they normally play and they would play and so the the drama started to get a little bit more interesting they, they became more natural into their into who they were and that meant tiger didn't talk as much of course but th- that meant the golf got more interesting and as a result because the golf got more interesting the whole thing got more interesting and so i, I think they were trying at the outset to be entertaining and be different and that wasn't why people really were watching they were watching to see Tiger and Phil play golf, and the point that they did that is what it became most interesting. Yeah, uh, Tiger hits that wedge close on what was that, 13, 14, and then yeah. and Phil gets him back after Tiger makes the sloppy bogey, and eventually goes one up, and then we get to 17, and and you know Jake said it, we had been waiting for a signature Tiger moment, a signature moment from anybody in this match, of which there was no signature moments. I mean. When TNT airs the 60-minute version of this next week, I don't know what they're going to put in from the first nine holes because none of it was very interesting. <laughs> um, you know, they'll, they'll probably hear Phil saying how hard it is to see a daughter go off to college. Um, but uh, Tiger's chip in there, I mean, that was, you know, look, you and I watch so much golf. We know when a chip in is likely to happen. Um, you know, straight uphill, nice lie, whatever, whatever. That was not an easy chip. That was up against the collar. He had to make sure he got ball first and not uh, grass to make sure he got the right spin on it. That was a really impressive chip in from somebody who has had, you know, three, four weeks off, have been grinding off and on for three, three and a half weeks. You don't know how much practice he got with intricate short game shots. Obviously, he had practiced his regular short game shots, but stuff like that to pull that out after a layoff was really impressive. And a shot like that is more guts and feel than anything. It's not something you've practiced or anticipated. you got to read what's in front of you. You've got to be able to execute a pretty dicey shot into a very specific spot with a specific speed. And if, you're, if it's going to go in, you got to get everything right. And he did. I mean, that, that is vintage Tiger Woods, seeing a short game shot for exactly what it is and playing it almost like a putt where you're trying to hit to a particular line and once you get to that line with the right speed, you're, you're gonna execute, you may not make it, but you're gonna, you're gonna be close. Yeah. And that it went in was kind of a bonus, I think. I'm sure he figured he needed to make it, but uh, given that Phil had an uphill putt, basically straight in for Bernie to, to go dormy and not win. So, wow, I mean, what a shot under the circumstances, but that was really the only takeaway shot from the day. Uh, other than Phil's shot to the 22nd hole. And 
I don't know if that's the memory you want of the match is that you had one really good one, but given the circumstances, pretty incredible. And with about 10, 15 feet left to go, I was at a bar watching at that point, bar restaurant, and I was like, it's in. And it just tracks perfectly right into the hole. And like you said, a really difficult shot to pull up in the circumstances. And, uh, but it, it made the match interesting. It made it compelling to get it square to go to 18. And uh, I think that that was kind of probably what those guys hoped for in the end, that it would go all the way. Were you surprised Tiger missed the putt to win? I, was Tiger's putt to Tiger's putt to win was on the nineteenth hole, right? Because Phil was then in the bunker, buried. First of all, the shot Phil hit on the nineteenth hole uh, will get overlooked, but that is not easy. I mean, the the the, the way and for the non golfers out there, the way you play buried lie up against the lip like that is you need it to run out you basically just want to get it out and it'll have no backspin so it'll just roll promise he had a creek in front of him so he couldn't play the traditional buried line shot he had to go up with it which landed him on the green and obviously you saw it roll out because i had total topspin but to keep it on that portion of the green was impressive um I, I look at that shot, A, as a turning point, because that ball could have gone anywhere, and if, and if Phil doesn't catch that perfectly right, that's in the hazard, and we're game over. And number two, um, Tiger ends up with that putt to win that never really hit the hole. That, that surprised me. Yeah, especially considering he had seen kind of the arc of that putt from Phil twice. Twice, yeah. And the 19th hole. And just under, both both times, still underestimated the break, one with too much speed, one with not enough, and then Tiger just did not play enough speed, and it seemed like he did that a lot throughout the day, that he just did not play an aggressive speed to hold these putts, and for whatever reason, he felt uncomfortable with the green speed, I guess, and just was not able to be his typical aggressive self with the putter in hand, so. They both did, I mean, he, Phil missed I mean, that. It, a, it was a makeable putt, but you also have to remember that it's still an eight-footer with two, maybe two cups of break, and uh, that's not easy putt to make. But I, I, given the circumstance, I would have expected him to make. And also with 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 darkness descending, which makes it sorry sorry cliche world. You can have a shot now. It's darker than it looks on your screen. Um, <laughs> Um, you know, I knew that that, that that green speeds might be a problem, Ryan. When Phil missed that putt on the par three, when he won closest to the pin, that was, what, like seven feet straight downhill, and he left it short? Short, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's just, I don't know what they did between the practice rounds and the actual, you know, competition round on Friday, but something was off green speed-wise. Um that that led to that putt being short. A, how do you feel about the, the 93-yard par-3 hole to, to, to finish up? And if you wrote about this, I have not read your articles. I'm sorry. So this is fresh for me. And B, um, I think that Tiger missing the green twice has been a little overhyped uh, and, and overcovered. He was, at, on either the first or the second time, a foot away from actually having him in the right spot to spin it right down the hill close to that hole. He misjudged his yardage, which you shouldn't from 93 yards. He finally got on, on the third time. But I think that's been overhyped. That's really tough. You're hitting from sort of half light to total light in darkness and trying to judge wind, of which there was none, but still, you're still trying to judge everything. The ground's getting dewier, so things are wet, so things may skid differently. That shot was harder than I think some people made it out to be. 
uncomfortable. I don't know if it's difficult, but it's uncomfortable. Yeah. When you're hitting a ball, when you, if you ever play night golf, or you, even if you, you know, played in a driving range, hit practice at a driving range at night under the floodlight, how you see the ball is, is totally different. And it felt like the light at the team ground on the practice screen was not nearly as bright as it was at the green itself. Yeah. So Woods probably had less light than he, than he thinks. He had laser eye surgery, so he doesn't have perfect eyesight over the years. And generally people at night when they play night golf as it gets darker, they tend to hit behind the ball more easily. So that's why probably Tiger teed it up higher than he expected after the first go-round. Because by the time you get to the third go-round, it looked like it was a half inch off the ground, which is crazy for a lob wedge. I mean, you just don't do that. But he wanted to make sure he had good contact on it, and he probably hoped that by teeing it up as high as he did, he might be able to kind of dead-handed and take a little bit of spin off of it because, like you said, the first two times that he tried it, he teed up a little bit lower, and he put a little bit more spin on it. He was going to try and suck it back off basically the fringe, and he just did a little too far for it to work. So I think the third time was by trial and error figuring out the best way he could hit that shot. Are you surprised that nobody made a putt to win until Phil did from four feet two inches? I mean, that just, and I don't know if this was a case of darkness making it tough to read. I, I don't know what the case was, but it just, it was odd to me that it took until 22 holes for somebody to make a darn putt. Um, and it was, it was a weird ending. It was a weird it was a weird vibe to a weird day all around, which we'll get to in a second. Um, but I just thought that that was that it took 22 holes, not because of people hitting in bunkers and in the wrong place, but just because nobody could make a putt. And, and you have to give them that they didn't want to try to win on a putt. Both of them could have easily. Yes, that's true too. And I, I think they obviously wanted it to end with some kind of memorable make. Yeah. You wanted a positive win. You didn't want a negative win. And so I, I think that probably extended it. Maybe maybe one of them would have missed it. Maybe they both would have made it. I don't know. But I think that probably left it at least one, if not two holes, too many uh, compared to if you, you had to cut everything out. Uh, uh, talking with Ryan Ballinger here about the match. All right. Now let's get to the other part of this. Um, I was a TV pay-per-view viewer, so I didn't have any issues uh, which a lot of other people have, which led to the match being streamed for free, although my cable carrier, as of an hour ago, has still not disclosed if they will do the refund. Cablevision and Verizon Fios continue to be the only two major carriers that have not disclosed if they will issue refunds or not, but I continue to check. Um, where are we, or, or, or where are, where do you come from? Um, well, let me back up. Um, from my perch as a pay-per-view viewer, A, I'm glad it ended when it did because my pay-per-view cut off at 8 p.m. and I never saw the trophy presentation, so I'm darn glad that it ended exactly where it did. B, from an actual golf production standpoint, Jeff Newbarth and company, whoever they wrangled to do this, did a heck of a job because I actually thought it was a pretty good golf broadcast. Um, and they got everything, which is what you want out of that um, with the blimp helping. They just hired too many announcers. They had too many voices. And we lost out on some really good audio, especially Phil and Mark Russell, and this is us nerding out about the 2019 rules. I don't know about you, but I'm going to have somebody from, from the USGA on in a couple weeks to talk about 
Golf Rules 2019, and I would have loved to have known what Phil was complaining about so that I could ask this USGA official for their opinion on it. And um, to me, there were too many voices, too many announcers, the lack of trash talk that, for hyping it as much as they did, that was disappointing, but I guess this should be expected. And the PGA Tour coming in at the last minute and limiting the number of side challenges was just total BS on, on, on their part, and they should not have done that. And um, it limited some of the other intrigue, but to me, it was just too many voices. You gotta get a group of people that can give you analysis, but also just totally shut up for long periods of time. And we didn't get that. And I also got some horrible Capital One Samuel L. Jackson, Charles Barkley ads that uh, didn't help matters in moments where there was talking. What, what was your take production-wise and, and TV production-wise on, on, on the whole thing? As a visual spectacle, I thought it was really well done. I think they did the right things. I think they had good camera work. The drone stuff was kind of interesting. The blimp stuff was interesting. Um, I think they did, they did pretty well, all things considered, probably with the budget that they had and the resources they had available. It was net solid. Everything else kind of stunk. Yeah. <laughs> um, I like Pat Perez, and I like Darren Clark, and I like Charles Barkley. I thought they were really entertaining components. But unfortunately, you had two players, and it felt like ten guys talking about two players. Yeah. And that, that ratio was not right. That's too much. And Ernie Johnson and Peter Jacobson, just it felt like they were just a gaggle of two guys talking the entire time. And they really should have been talking about a one-fifth as much as they did because they, as you mentioned, spoke over a number of conversations either between Phil and someone else or Tiger and Phil or Tiger and someone else, whatever. And it took away from potentially getting some insight into how they actually operate inside the ropes and what they really feel about certain aspects of the game or what they've done in their careers. I thought that was really disappointing. They built up themselves, Tiger and Phil did, but there might be some trash talk and stuff like that, and there wasn't. And so that's on them. I mean, that's for, for cultivating this idea that there'd be a lot of BS talking, and we got hardly any more about how great it is their kids were there and that they're getting old and stuff and nothing personal. And, and again, that's their choice, but I think it misled people into what the ultimate end product was going to be. So. What I would have liked to have seen was for have basically one play-by-play -play guy, one color guy. Shane Bacon was fine as an interviewer. He tried at times to, they tried, I think, to insert him to kind of facilitate some things, and it worked to some extent. It almost would have been better to have him do more work uh, just to try to facilitate a discussion more than anything else. But I would have kept the talking to a minimum. I would have certainly kept the Capital One bits sure. to a minimum because this, is a, this was a pay-per-view, even though most people got their money back. This was a pay-per-view, and pay-per-views have a certain expectation among viewers that there will be minimal commercials, minimal corporate influence, more minimal kind of infusion of corporate interest in the commercials. And that was kind of betrayed here. So I, I think if you're going to do this again in the future and you're going to charge money for it, then you have to give people a discount if you're going to basically force them to watch commercials they don't want to watch and they want, you know, I, I just thought that was a, a misfire by, by Turner and Capital One. But it, it, the other part of this is if you're going to do these one-off golf events, 
and NBC or CBS, and to a lesser extent Fox, you're not going to do them, then you have a really limited pool of talent you can pull from to make this interesting, to deliver insightful commentary and not be banal and not uh, not have the wrong cadence about it and to not come across as either obtuse or uninformed. And that's kind of the battle Fox faces every year with their USGA coverage, and it's the battle that Turner faced in doing this. And so I, I just wish that there was a better farm system of golf talent out there that could be available in a pinch or for these one-offs and still do a really good job. But we really do not have that as a sport. Uh, talking with Ryan Ballinger here about the um – Match Tiger versus Phil. Um, what's interesting, Ryan, and I, I'm, I'm totally with you on just way too many voices. Um, what's, what, what interests me going forward is I don't know if there's a match too. I, I, I don't know if there's a viable model here. This is an absolute streaming failure. Dan Ravel of ESPN called it the bigger, biggest pay-per-view failure in history. They're going to lose a whole lot of revenue money because of all the people getting refunded. Um, I know that Tiger, Phil, Spieth, Jordan, Spieth, Ricky, JT, Ricky has been been thrown around. Um, but I don't know if people are going to pay for this again. I don't know what the solution is. I don't know. I mean, yes, the, the, the TV production f- fixes are easy. You can do that in five seconds. Um, but I don't know if this model continues to the match, too. I, I think that the, that either people loved it or they hated it. There was nothing in between, and I don't know where this goes from here. Yeah, I think the money component of it was extremely divisive. You can tell certainly from the reaction overseas, particularly in the UK. I read basically the same column from two or three different people that the money was obscene, the betting component was awful and ostentatious and, and that was in part because of their betting culture has become so pervasive and there's kind of a, a, a natural controversy over there about in-play betting and the amount of it and the amount of advertising around it and the effect on children that they are way ahead of where we are as a sports betting culture they're dealing with all the stuff that we will eventually deal with in the next couple of years as sports betting becomes more prolific. So right now, they're dealing with this big backlash to it after years of accepting it and being okay with it. So I got the reaction from over there. I get that. But the reaction over here really intrigues me because I think people who are looking at it as a bigger, broader enterprise, the traditional pay-per-view sense of like a, a big boxing fight sense or a big UFC fight sense, I think they're kind of missing the point because I don't think that was the point for Tiger and Phil. They're not trying to build a, a series of matches here that millions upon millions of the general sporting public are going to watch. I don't think that's what they're, they're going for here. I think they realize golf and niche sport, they're the two recognizable superstars that the, the general sports populace kind of understands and gets and cares about. You don't have that with the younger guys right now. You may never, but they, they certainly aren't there now. So I think what they were doing is trying to create a viable golf product that golf fans could be interested in and could watch in the future with a different set of things on the line, different set of challenges, different set of formats, whatever that is, but be different and charge money for it and effectively try to keep the PGA Tour out of it. I mean, they were paid some kind of 
mob-style thumb, basically, so that they could sanction it, promote it, stuff like that. Have, uh, I, um, have Mark Russell work um, on Thanksgiving have weekend. Have work in, of course. Yeah. Shot link data, stuff like that. Yeah. But I feel like Phil and Tiger are trying to create something where there's an acknowledgement we're heading to a world of niche content. We're already there, really, but we're slow to recognize it, that we're creating content for everybody. So whether you fit into small, they, what all small buckets you fit into with your interests, there's content out there for you, and it's very myopic. It's not t- intended to be broad interest generating lots of money. It's intended to reach a specific set of people and make a good amount of money because it reaches a specific set of people, very targeted. So I think that that's what Bill and Tiger are trying to build here, where they could have, with a service like BR Live, which is fledgling and looking for content, they could have two, four, whatever number of players on this card, have uh, unique, interesting matches every once in a while, maybe that's once a year, whatever, and you could charge a reasonable amount of money for it as a diversion from what they see every week on the PGA Tour. And you're not going to get like a million buys or two million buys like a boxing fight. You're going to get like 100,000 buys or 200,000 buys. And that's great. Because of the 10 bucks, that's $2 million in the Turner's pocket. And if they can kind of figure out a way to underwrite it with sponsors like they've done here with Capital One, then maybe they, they turn over a pretty decent amount of money and they can do more of these instead of just kind of this one big blowout style that I don't think was as well received. No. Um, where, uh, I, uh, on a one to five scale, where this is the worst thing you ever watched and it was the worst um, realization of expectations, and five is, oh my God, this surpassed everything, this was amazing, this was, this was, you know, oh my God. On that scale, where were you coming in and where are you coming out? I don't know where I was coming in. I, uh, uh, I was skeptical, but hopeful. So I was the exact same way, by the way. I think it actually kind of met my expectations. Uh, there was some upside to it. There were some cool components to it. But you had to remember this was the first time this was being done this way. There were going to be glitches and mistakes and missteps, and there were plenty of those. But the golf turned out to be pretty good in the end. I mean, the, the beginning stunk, but the, the end was pretty compelling. So I, I think in the one to five scale, in fact, game ended about a two, two and a half and left at a two, two and a half. Uh, and that's okay. That It wasn't, I, I feel like people were expecting the moon and they should have tempered their expectations because of what this really was. This was something new and it was done by an inexperienced provider on an inexperienced platform. And they're being judged against traditional television and traditional golf broadcasting. So I, I don't think that they delivered on what they could have hoped to have done. I think it could have been done better. I think they probably could have maxed out at a three and a half or four on your five scale. But they didn't deliver on that. But they, they gave some promise that if this was done again, that maybe it could be done better and it could be done in a more compelling way. And maybe you throw out an option like delayed buying where they're starting to do this at NBA games now where you can buy the last quarter of a game on League Pass. Well, no one wants to watch the first three quarters of a regular season NBA game. They're boring. But I want to watch the last 12 minutes or two minutes or whatever. So maybe in the future they say, well, 
you don't you don't want to watch the back nine or front nine. That's okay. But if you want to buy the back nine for ten bucks or twelve bucks, because that's where the action is, okay. Well, we'll give you that for that price instead. And they could kind of learn from that and, and get people to buy in when it's convenient or when there's been buzz that's built up about it. Talking to Ryan Bounge here on Teeing It Up. Um, it's one year ago, uh, Ryan, you were on this radio program and you said that what Tiger was doing a year ago this week was a mistake, a grave mistake that could seriously damage his future prospects. Maybe I'm overstating it a bit, but, but you and I agreed that it was too much too soon. Here's another Hero World Challenge, and Tiger's one of the favorites to win in a field that any of the 18 can win because you've got so many different agendas going on this, 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 this time of year between guys who are grinding, guys who are off loan layoffs, guys who have just flown in from a foreign country, guys who are testing equipment, guys who actually want to win because they need the world ranking points, whatever, whatever. Um, it's pretty amazing how different Tiger's world is 52 weeks ago to now, isn't it? It's a big change. And I still think that what he did was dangerous. It just turned out to work. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was just great. Is what he's still doing dangerous? What's that? Is what he's still doing every week, playing with this swing at that swing speed, dangerous? Maybe. I mean, I don't, I don't know for, for certain. Maybe he doesn't know. Yeah. I mean, I think there haven't been that many cases of someone who's had a spinal fusion that's gone back to playing a major professional sport at the highest level. So it, it, It's only know. Stacey Lewis, and it was not to this degree. So, I mean, at that point, we're in uncharted territory. So, I guess, ride it as long as you can. But we'll find out eventually, I guess. But yeah. Like said, you know, we're 52 weeks in, like you said, to this comeback. And he's delivered on almost every facet of it. He won. He's in the top 15 in the world. He's contended in the last two majors. He had to leave for a loan for an hour on the final day of one. He almost tracked down the player of the year. I mean, he... He's done really well for himself, and if he manages to win this week, I, I don't know where he would wind up in the world rankings. We don't have sixth. Points yet, but sixth. Oh, yeah, top ten? Yes, uh, um, sixth. No matter what, he will be sixth if he wins. So there you go. I mean, he could find himself in the top six in the world, and if you looked at the penalty that he faces for not playing events in the official world golf ranking over the last couple of years, he would actually be the number one player in the world right now based on just sheer points with no penalty. So it, it's pretty incredible what he's done in a short period of time. Um, it, it really is a marvel, and I don't think we appreciate it enough. No. and I really do not. And to your point, I believe on 2018 points alone, he's fifth in the world. I think I have that right. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, um, it, it, it is remarkable. We are entering one of the most perilous months of December in golf history, and there's a great Doug Ferguson article about this, which I highly recommend, which is rules officials who purposely did not study the 2019 changes because they did not want to confuse themselves, now have basically a month after this week, there's the shark shootout and then the father's son, but for a lot of, of, of officials around the world, um, uh, they, they are now starting their, their process of learning these rule changes, um, some of which are great, some of which are horrible. You and I will talk about this next year when we have you on 
to preview the uh, tournament of champions. But what I want to tease this with looking forward towards next year is how many incorrect, confusing, confounding, uh, you, you did something wrong, no wait, I, I need to call him back up to make sure this is taking too long, <laughs> rulings what we have in the first like two months of the year, because I just feel what the pace of play is going to be if somebody has one of these rulings that's now different. I think that there will have to be some patience for the players and for the officials for that matter on the major tours, especially when it comes to stuff in hazards. Yeah. Because you can ground your club in a hazard. You can drop differently. You can uh, you can take a penalty stroke. I mean, professionals wouldn't do this, but you can take two penalty strokes and take the ball out of the bunker. I mean, you can do a bunch of stuff in 2019. It's going to sound kind of crazy to people living in the, the previous era playing under that set of rules. And so there's going to be some time that's going to, a general education process is going to take. But if you think about the number of kind of crazy rulings that happen in a PGA Tour season, they're what, like 10? Yeah. So maybe it'll be 20, something like that next year. And I, I think that after, like you said, the first maybe month or two, the, the rules officials will familiarize themselves with the rules. That's their job. They'll get done. They'll take care of it quickly. I, I have faith in that. And then it'll come down to the players realizing how the new rules work, how the old rules work, and what the difference is. And that will create some pace of play issues probably at points. But it's kind of like, I mean, if you're Catholic and they changed the math a few years ago and they changed the way you said certain words and prayers and things like that, and people still to this day, if you go to church, will say some things the old way. But by and large, people picked up on it and they're cool with it now. And I'm not going to say this is a years-long process, but there will still be mistakes made, I'm sure. But the, the goal of the PGA Tour and the LPGA, European Tour, all those tours is to put the rules officials in position to make sure these guys don't make a mistake that costs them a tournament. And they'll make sure they do that. What's interesting to me is, um, in, in, in that line of thinking, is every, you know, every couple of weeks we see a player who takes advantage of the rules and, and not in a negative way, but totally legally helps them. You know, maybe they were on a cart path and they choose to, you know, call in some other rule for, you know, or, or you know, they, they, they take a ground under repair ruling on a cart path because then they'll take a cart path drop and that'll give them a better angle or whatever. Try and navigate knowing the rules to the point where you can take those advantages. I'm trying to think of one right now and I can't, but knowing what you're dealing with and taking the rulings and, and using the rules to your benefit, I, I think that might be for the players where the hardest, it, 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 not messing up a rule and getting it wrong, but actually knowing when to use them to your advantage. I think that may take the longest of any of these things. Maybe. I, I think for the, many of the rules changes put into place, a professional will never deal with them. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, they just won't. They're not going to worry about it because they're not things designed for professionals. They're designed for amateurs to speed up the game, make it a little bit easier. Yeah. I think by and large, the, the way that you're going to be able to take advantage of the rules in 2019 will still be the same as 2018 or before. It just maybe a little bit more help in hazards. I think that's really the area you can kind of get the most benefit from the rules for the professional. The rules changes, that is. I'm sure we'll see some kind of rash of players and Bryson DeChambeau leading them, of guys who put the flag stick in. That honestly is what intrigues me the most is how 
the pacing will work of, of putting if guys choose to have the the putting the flags to in or the will to be more tending. That that'll be interesting. Darkness. Darkness will be interesting. That, that I think can be the biggest benefit in darkness. You know, guys who are missing the cut can run up there, putt with the flag stick in, who, who know they are missing the cut, and then get to that next tee so that they can finish once darkness falls. I think that's a big benefit, because right now one of the hindrances, if you're gonna send somebody in your group ahead who's, who's totally out of it and can waste a couple shots, they have to have somebody take the flag out first, which, which can slow them down. Now you can just putt with the flag stick in and, 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 and then get going to that 18th tee. I had thought of that. that. That certainly could come up. I mean, you could keep kind of things moving a little bit more quickly when you don't have to have a caddy to go tend the flag. Yeah, you can get, you know, send someone as, as that guinea pig. Because every time darkness falls, we see somebody who is either curly out of it or is willing to do it, who runs up there, puts out, and then runs to the tee, asks the group in front if they can hit, and then they hit. And then the players who are actually still in contention for something they just, you know, work at their normal pace. So that could make a difference. It'll be interesting to see. Um, very last thing, Ryan, what will happen first? A tournament inserts the local rule about out of bounds and lost balls being uh, two shots, but you don't have to take stroke and distance or someone winning the calendar grand slam. this and my dad can hear this because this is my dad's biggest thing about the stroke and distance rule um, have you in your life and you've played a lot more golf than I have and have played in some competitive tournaments that you know it, it, sorry not competitive tournaments in, in, in terms of like actual tournaments but just charity outings and then those kind of things have you ever in non-competition recreational golf seen anybody go back to the, the uh, sorry go back to the tee after a ball out of bounds or lost not a non-competitive situation hell no, no. yeah See, that's my thing about that rule. Like, I don't know. I'll be very curious to see at what level they someone institutes that rule because none of us recreationally use the stroke and distance rule as is anyway. No. No. It's a, I mean, it's a, time of, it's a pace of play killer. Yeah. So I, I think that a competitive level is going to be great. You know, you can, you can use that as basically make out of bounds a lateral hazard plus an additional stroke. I think high school golf may use that. You know, stuff at that level where you're trying to beat darkness during certain times of years, I think that's where you could see the local rule instituted. Yeah, I think you could even see it in like a, a mini tour style event where they, a lot of those courses, uh, developmental tours are often in housing developments and you have a very limited set of time and depending on the size of the field, 
you might want to just get it done and you right. declare that as a local rule. So I, I think that might be worth the, the first place you could see it in a high-level competition. Yeah, but I, I, I doubt Mark Russell will announce in a players' meeting that we are instituting the new stroke and distance rule. When that day comes, yeah, uh, when that day comes, we'll be... Uh, We'll be on the floor in shock. Uh, Ryan Bounge, as always, from, from the Golf News Net, thank you for coming on Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jeremy. Appreciate it. And thank you all for listening to Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling. We'll see you soon.